Welcome to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coombs. So, today's broadcast is going to be brought to you by Give Me an Answer by uh, Cliff and Stuart Connectly. They are pastors of Grace Community Church over in New Canaan, Connecticut. They are going to be doing an episode today where I think it's very important to talk about is, is there other gods? Are there other gods out there? Um, and why do we believe Jesus is the only, the true, truly the only way to life Truth, the life, and the only way. A little tongue-tied there. So, I'll be playing this video. It's our partnership between uh, Grace Community Church um, and with myself here at Next Generation Saints. So, I hope this richly blesses you. And if you're interested at all, just go ahead and go to Give Me an Answer on YouTube, where you can follow this continuously. And if you want to see more times for, like, seeing their church or having uh, times... You know, for their services and whatnot, any other kind of information about these guys, take a look over Grace Community Church, New Canaan, Connecticut on Google. You can find them there. All the information's there for you. So, I hope this truly blesses you. All right, so I'm going to try to be um, really direct and honest. Um, Thank you. So, um, short statement and then two, two related questions. Short statement, um, I, I'm immediately... Uh, angered and offended that this kind of thing happens on public property. Um, mm -hmm. So that's what, where I'm coming from. But yep. given that, I'm going to try to ask very honest, direct questions. You bet. Um, so on the Can first... I respond to your first statement? Yeah, of course. I think what you've just expressed is the essence of intolerance. I respect anybody's right to stand out here, be they atheist, communist, Marxist, Leninist, capitalist, agnostic, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, and say what they want to say. And I'm very grateful that I live in a country that supports free speech. Secondly, I thought that I was in a liberal arts educational environment. I thought that the basis of liberal arts education was the belief in the free exchange of ideas, the right to disagree with each other and then to explain respectfully why we disagree. balanced conversation when you have an enormous institution and a huge amount of people behind you on one side and a very small number of dissenters oh, that's really? not free speech. Tell me who's behind me. What's this big institution that's behind me? Um, well the majority of people here are listening very reverently. This isn't like a, a two-sided debate. Um, Sir, you're not having, no one has forced you to stand here. No one's forced me to stand here. I'm under the impression that you have a free will and you've chosen to be there and I respect that. And these people choose to sit here because they choose to. I don't know who they are. And I don't have any big organization behind me, for crying out loud. So why don't you get in touch with reality? It's a refreshing exercise. Well, I was hesitant to stand up anyway, but I would actually like to ask two questions. And they're coming from my heart, OK? OK. Um, as someone who has been raised outside of the church, and I just don't take the Bible as evidence, is there any? way that I could be converted? Is that the only way that you can reach out to someone that doesn't have any kind of cultural upbringing, that hasn't been raised with already those doubts? How can you speak to someone who's absolutely legitimately an atheist? 
please, I mean, please answer directly. I have many friends who are former atheists. And these people who are former atheists relax their mind. They tried to be as objective as possible and to look at the evidence that God exists. And then once they move from atheism to theism, then they relax their mind. They tried to be as objective as possible and read the Gospels, not as the Word of God, simply as accurate history, because the evidence is the Gospels give us some accurate history. And confronted by the lifestyle, teachings, death, and resurrection of Christ, they saw the evidence is Christ is reliable, and they chose to put their faith in Him. So you, you, you said that there were two steps there? The second step, once you've acknowledged that there could be some sort of right. all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good thing, right. um, the second, after, once you've done that, that's fine. It's that first step that I'm really concerned with. So you're saying that there's actually fact-based evidence that is best explained through an existence of God. Philosophical evidence, yes, sir. I'm not talking specifically about um, experiments or anything like that, but even even philosophical evidence. Philosophical and you think, and evidence. You think that's the best, most rational explanation? Yes. Okay, so we, we have thousands of years of history of, dis of debates about these kind of things, and I don't want to revisit those, but do you have an answer for someone who's already gone through those and hasn't been convinced of the factual accu accuracy or of Occam's razor? I mean, if, there, if, if I honestly think that there are just more reliable descriptions that match the facts better, theory that just has fewer things that you have to assume that explain it just as well. If I'm in that position, knowing that I am a limited person and could be wrong, is there room for faith? That was kind of a technical question. Would you like me to try to repeat it? Mm -hmm. So is it, do you think that it's possible to both think that the best answer is atheism? That, that I can logically disprove the existence of the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good. Yet, through knowing my own limitation, through knowing that logic itself can be flawed, that our brains cannot understand everything, is that enough of a doubt to admit the kind of faith that's required to believe in God? Sir, all you've got to do is look at the evidence for the reliability of Christ. Then you say, no, I'm sorry. Not enough evidence, I can't believe. But when you say that, what you are clearly saying is, before I trust anything to be true, it must meet this level of evidence. So my two questions for you then are, in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is not supported by enough evidence, what is the object that you have chosen to trust in? And secondly, what is the preponderance of evidence that supports this option as being more reliable than Christ? I would say that the discussion isn't between two different things that, that explain the, the, the environment that we see, but it's a very specific proposition of either an all-knowing, all-powerful God exists, or it doesn't. And I believe that the evidence supports the second. And I don't think that you need to, that that, that argument specifically requires there to be something else that you believe in. Just like I mean, you can talk about the non-existence of something, if it were, if it logically would impact your life in some way and it doesn't impact your life in that way, then it doesn't exist without positing something else instead. Tonight, I, when you put your head on your pillow, tonight when I put my head on my pillow, like it or not, you are living for something or someone. Like it or not, I'm living for someone or something. You have said the reason that you cannot believe in Christ is because of a lack of evidence. 
No, I said an evidence against. That's a very important difference. All right, fine. Evidence against. Okay. So what I need to challenge you to do is explain to me what or who you are living for and why. What's all the evidence that points to whatever the option is you've chosen other than Christ? What's this overwhelming evidence that has convinced you that this option is more trustworthy than Christ? Well, we're talking about two different things here, um, and I, I'm going to—I'm trying to answer your question. This is the only way I know how. Um, I'm talking about whether something exists or not, and you brought in value. You brought in why—why why are you living? What are you living for? You're, you know, what, why are you good? Something like that. Like, what is your purpose? And the question that I was asking was very much about what exists, and if God does not exist, frankly, if nothing above me exists, that doesn't imply that I have nothing to live for. Right. That, yeah, and I do definitely have things to live for that right. I can specifically point to that have nothing to do with whether there's a God. Right. That's right. I know that. Okay. Then I, just I don't understand I just... why there's a connection there. For some reason, you and the two gentlemen before, I'm not sure that you guys respect language the way I do. How do you mean? I agree with those who say that language can just be a power move to assert your power. And that happens at times. But I'm convinced that if we take language seriously and if we listen to each other, we can have meaningful conversation. I thought I just said to you, tonight, when you put your head on your pillow, like it or not, you're going to have to acknowledge you're living for something or someone. Like it or not, when I put my head on my pillow tonight, I'm going to have to acknowledge I'm living for someone or something. I agree with that. We both have faith. Now, you have said to me crystal clearly that there is not enough evidence that God exists, and you didn't want to hear me go over that evidence, and I respect that. And you have also clearly said that there's not enough evidence that Jesus Christ is reliable. Fine, no problem. But when you say to me, the reason you can't believe that God exists, the reason you can't believe that Jesus Christ is the truth is because of lack of evidence. In order not to be an intellectual hypocrite, I'm asking you, what do you live for, and what's this preponderance of evidence that convinces you that this option is superior to God to Christ? I can answer the question. I just didn't Please think do. it was relevant to the conversation. I, I, I believe in flourishing, in human flourishing, in eudaimonia. I believe that, that we have goodness in our lives, that there are good things to experience and good things to learn and be. I mean, it, it's, there, there is an inherent goodness to human life that has no relationship with anything higher than humanity. And once you acknowledge that there's something higher than humanity, it belittles us. I, I, I specifically, just so I don't get off topic, that what I live for is flourishing. Who to, defines flourishing? I do, for myself. Fine. And the KKK defines flourishing for themselves. That's fine. It's that doesn't fine? mean they're right. And the terrorists who bombed and shot people in Paris define flourishing for themselves. Yeah, but now you're, you're making... So you asked what I live for. You did not say, do I believe in some sort of absolute good? I, I, did, I did not. I asked you, how do you define flourishing? Who defines flourishing? We each define flourishing. Okay. Now, if you think about it, you're going to realize You've thought it one way, define flourishing one way. The terrorists have obviously defined it another way. Nobody's right, nobody's wrong, it's all relative. I'm not talking about ethics. That's why I said this was outside of the realm of the conversation. This is flourishing an does not question. include ethics? Excuse me?
Flourishing does not include ethics? You asked what I live for. Yeah, flourishing, you said. Yeah, that's not an ethical statement. That's a psychological statement. Does that include statement. ethics? To flourish as a human being, does that include understanding what's good? I thought you used no, the word goodness. It includes goodness. It doesn't understand the, it, the, the un, it does not include the understanding of goodness. It includes my, goodness, my, but not the understanding of my goodness. My moral imperative is Language to is flourish. breaking down. No, my moral imperative is to flourish. My moral imperative is not, it, it, it does not include having some sort of ultimate goodness. I don't have that claim on reality. I, I, I just said earlier in my, my honest question, one that I've asked of priests in the past when I was really questioning, my honest question is, can, is faith compatible with, with this idea? That, that's, that's a very specific question, okay? With, with flourishing? With the fact that my logic is limited, I could be wrong. I know that I could be wrong. Whether you take that same idea and apply it to flourishing, yes, I am going to do my utmost to be a good person, but that does not mean that I know what good is. I don't lay any sort of claim to absolute goodness. Like it or not, you have to make a judgment call on what the terrorists did in Paris. They define that as flourishing, as their goodness. Now, you just can't live in a vacuum and say, well, it really doesn't matter, it's irrelevant. You have to make a judgment call. Is that right or wrong? You have to make a judgment call. Is the KKK right or wrong in denigrating black people and elevating Aryan supremacy? You can't just live in a vacuum and say, well, it, it's irrelevant. It's not irrelevant. It's real life. So who defines flourishing? And if you define it, then what makes your definition right and the KKK or the terrorist definition wrong? Our disagreement isn't about what flourishing is. Our disagreement seems to be that you think that there has to be this objective rule, and if I'm not following that, you even specifically said it earlier, that's why I stood up. You, you accused anyone who does not have an absolute idea of ethics as being a relativist. You're, you're accusing me of being a relativist and saying that I believe this and someone else believes that and that we're both right in our own spheres. And there is there are other ethical views besides absolutism and relativism. Like you, you can't set up this false dichotomy and say either I'm making some sort of absolute claim or what I'm saying is useless. That's just totally unfair and doesn't match our human experience. So, I mean, I... It matches my experience totally, as it does Camus, Sartre, and Nietzsche, Bertrand Russell, and all the great atheistic thinkers who had the intellectual honesty to acknowledge if there is no God, there is no mind prior to the human mind, which means it's obviously the human mind that defines justice and injustice, what it means to flourish or not flourish, what it means to live a good life or not to live a good life, it's all the creation of the human mind. It's a human fantasy. Those are my fantasy is not superior to your fantasy. Your fantasy is not superior to my fantasy. It's all relative. And I'm saying, sir, I don't think you can live that way. I, I think agree. I could be wrong. I think you live as if the terrorist attacks in Paris, France were absolutely wrong. You see, you can't say that if you're going to hold to what you believe in, which is there is no God, morality is relative. I define flourishing, I define goodness for myself. Fine. If what you say is true, if what you believe is true, then have the intellectual honesty to say the terrorists define good, flourishing life their own way. They're not wrong. I'm not right. It's all in taste. It's a matter of taste. In case it's not obvious, I do think that atrocities are wrong. 
in case it's not obvious, I think that there are incredibly bad things happening in the world and that we have a personal responsibility to stand up and do something about it. I am sure you do. Our disagreement's not about that. that. Our disagreement is about whether there's an intermediate ground, not even intermediate, putting it on a spectrum is false, but something that's neither absolutism nor relativism. An example from, from a relatively Christian person is Immanuel Kant. He said that there is a transcendental mind, that people come together, not literally come together, but there is an understanding among humans of what is right and wrong. And it's not an individual person, but neither is it an absolute thing. There are other ways of looking at this besides this false dichotomy. So that, I, I think that maybe I'm getting a little too technical, but I mean, honestly, I wanted to ask the question about, given that I just don't see the evidence, but it is the knowledge of my own lack enough to admit faith. And it seems like what you're saying is, no, you have to admit the evidence. And what that means to me is that I can't have faith then. So that's, that's my conclusion here, unless, unless you'd like to try to answer that question. The reason it's so frustrating to talk with you is because I don't think you listen to me very carefully. I'm sorry. I, I think I feel like I have been. I'm sorry if we're not. I said, sir, you have faith. I have faith. Don't you remember? I talked about tonight. Both of us are going to put our heads on our pillows. <laughs> sir, I went over it twice with you. Yes, but that's you're very not smart. Well, there's, there's a problem. Yes, I am answering you're your question. Not with a yes, no answer. Not this with a yes, no answer. I'm trying to point out to you that every atheist, every agnostic, every Muslim, Jew, Christian, we all have faith. What does that mean? It means that all of us have to deal with the basic fundamental questions. Why is a human being valuable? Is there a purpose to life? Why do I behave ethically the way I do? Is there life after death or is there not? None of us can scientifically prove that our answers to any of those four questions are absolutely true. Instead, they are philosophical questions that you have to use logic, experience, observation to answer. We all answer them, though. All of us have answers to the question, is a human being worth anything, yes or no? Is there a purpose to life, yes or no? Is it right or wrong to bomb people in Paris and be part of the KKK? Yes or no? Is there life after death or not? Yes or no? We all have to struggle with those issues. You have no choice. Why? Because you have to live life. That's why. You all answer them. Now guess what? All of us have faith when we answer those questions. None of us can prove that our answers to any of those questions is right. So sir, please don't walk away from here telling me or thinking that I didn't say you have faith. I know you have got faith. Same way I've got faith. You just have a different faith from me. That's all. An atheist has faith, just a different faith than I do. We all have faith, trusting that something is true, not because we can prove it, but hopefully because we've got evidence. And that's why I pressed you, sir, and said, what's your faith in, and what's the evidence that whatever it is that you believe in is reliable? So I've been straight as an arrow with you, you sir. I agree with everything you just said, honestly. Well, good. No, that, that's not. I, the problem is that that's not speaking to whether there's a God. And I'm specifically asking you that. No, you cut me off at the knees when it came to answering that. I'm sorry? How? You cut me off intellectually at the knees. Because I started to answer you, and you said, 
I don't want to go through all those arguments that have gone over the past 2,000 years over whether God exists or not. No, no, yeah, you're right. You cut me off at the knees intellectually. So let's not act like, oh yeah, you've come out here with an open mind inviting me to explain to you why I believe God exists. No, you that's did. not what I'm asking. It's you didn't. Not. You cut me right off. I'm not asking you to explain why you believe in God. I'm really not. I know you're I've not. Because I've been doing that for 20 years. Right. What, what I want to know is given that I've already decided that, I, that the evidence doesn't support it, am, is the question done? Is there further work to be done here? If I know that the best evidence supports that there's no God, is there further work? Should I still keep looking? Yeah. Simply because of the knowledge of my own imperfection. Yeah, you sure should. And I told you why. Because like it or not, you have to answer the question. Is human life valuable? If so, why? Well, I've answered those. It has nothing to do with God. Yeah, and you're up a creek without a paddle when it comes to explaining why human life has value if there is no God innate intrinsic value yeah if there is no god i give my life value you give your life value or society gives your life value but it's not innate and intrinsic and which means if you happen to be born value? at the time of the dred scott decision and you happen to be a black person tough luck you are three-fifths the value of white folks according to the u.s supreme court that's what society has decided and my point is, I could give a rip about what society decides. Racism is absolutely wrong because human beings are created in the image of God. They have an intrinsic, innate value that is not determined by my opinion, your opinion, or the United States government's opinion. How is God giving us value more intrinsic than us giving ourselves value? Because if there is no God, your number came up in a Monte Carlo game. You are a freak accident of nature. You do not get value out of a freak accident. You get nothing. You get meaninglessness. Then you have to create your own value. But if you choose not to create the same value tomorrow that you did today, you're not wrong. You're not right, because it's all a crapshoot. It's all, do you like broccoli or corn? What's your taste? Oh, tomorrow you like the other one more than the one you like today? Just taste. So, you want to be Mother Teresa today? Great, go be Mother Teresa. Tomorrow you want to be Adolf Hitler? Just your taste, go ahead. It's all meaningless, sir. Despair is honest atheism. Despair is honest atheism. Don't take it from me. Really Nietzsche, logical Camus, Sartre, <laughs> knocked it right out of the ballpark. No, I mean, you yes. can't just say these things. That Read if a person yourself. makes a decision, it's inherently arbitrary, that any person can't make the... You're, you're even bringing up Camus. You're even bringing yeah. up the people who specifically said that people are the ones who make decisions about meaning. And it's all relative. No, it it's all meaningless. Well, just read L'Etranger by Camus. First lines of the book are the words of a young teenage boy who says, yesterday mother died. Or was it today? Who gives a rip? Life is meaningless. It doesn't matter whether mother died last week or yesterday. Life is absurd. And that's what Camus struggled with. And that's why Camus said the only question modern man must answer is, why not commit suicide? Why go on sucking wind and living? If it's all meaningless, if it doesn't matter whether you're Adolf Hitler II or Mother Teresa II, realize life is a meaningless trip.
I don't know of a single human being who doesn't struggle with doubt. And in Matthew chapter 11, we read about John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Christ. John the Baptist had a tremendous ministry. People flocked to listen to him speak. But then when he met Christ, he pointed people to Jesus, and people began to leave him and follow Christ. Then John the Baptist pointed his bony finger into the face of King Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, and said, you're doing evil in the way you have your brother Philip's wife. That's adultery, and it's wrong, it's cheating, it's sinful. Well, you don't say that to a king without expecting some consequences. And Herod the Tetrarch had John the Baptist thrown into prison. No problem for John the Baptist. I'm sure he was thinking, well, Jesus is the Messiah. Certainly he will spring me from this prison cell. Certainly he will have me released. But instead, John the Baptist began to languish in prison. Christ continued to preach, to heal people, to open the eyes of the blind, to make the lame walk, to love on people. And John heard about it, but he stayed in prison. His expectation was, certainly, Christ is Messiah. He will get me out of this prison cell. But the days continued to mount, and he languished in prison. So finally one day, John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus to ask them, Jesus, are you the Christ, or did I make a mistake? Jesus understood John the Baptist's dilemma. And he said to the disciples of John the Baptist, go back and tell John, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are healed, and the good news is preached to the poor. And then after those disciples of John the Baptist left, Jesus said, I tell you, he's the greatest man. John the Baptist, though, struggled with doubt, understandably so. He had some expectations of what God should do, of what Jesus the Messiah should do, and Jesus didn't quite measure up. The fascinating thing is that Jesus never promises to solve all our problems immediately. Christ does not promise to get us out of jams, to get us out of prison, to heal our cancer, to heal our melanoma, our heart disease. No, quite to the contrary, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus Christ pointed out that life is unfair, that you and I live in a cursed, messed up world, but the amazing message of the gospel is God cares. He cares so much that he wants to intervene in your life and in my life to grow our character, not necessarily heal us of all our diseases, not necessarily get us a new job when we're unemployed, not necessarily have our estranged spouse come back to us. He respects our free will. He respects the free decision of your spouse. He respects your free decisions. And he's not going to supernaturally, miraculously intervene and change everything. But he is promising to be with us and to grow our character, to grow our spiritual life, to grow a depth, an inner strength that will enable us to handle the painful experiences of life. And then Jesus says, you trust in me and I promise to ultimately solve all of your problems by giving you eternal life in heaven. Is heaven just a pipe dream? Is heaven just a way to help grieving people deal with their misery? No. Heaven is the strongest, most powerful affirmation of your life and my life imaginable. God created you and me to live for eternity not to live 60 to 80 years and then become part of the great fertilizer pit. 
God did not create us to live 60 to 80 years and then have the trap door open and we just fall off into oblivion. Instead, God created us to know Him, to love Him, to love others, and to do that for 60, 80, 40, 20 years, and then for eternity in heaven, in a new heaven and a new earth. Now, why on earth would someone believe that? How on earth do you deal with your doubt? By studying, by struggling through the difficult issues. And when you're confronted by the dead Jesus, who rose from the dead three days after he died on that cruel cross, you're confronted by solid evidence that Jesus Christ is totally credible, totally trustworthy, totally reliable. And that is why faith in Christ is not a blind leap into the dark. Faith in Christ is a step into the light because the evidence is he was totally in touch with reality. And to put your confidence in him, to put your expectations regarding the future on him is a very wise decision, for he is all-powerful. He broke death. He rose from the dead. He's the living supernatural God who gave you and me life in the first place, and he promises eternal life to all who trust in him. Are you looking forward to going to heaven? You can. When you humbly, sincerely, trust in Jesus Christ. God bless you as you make that most important decision. I'm the pastor of Grace Community Church. We meet every Sunday morning, 9.30, at Grace Farms, which is located at 365 Luke's Wood Road in New Canaan, Connecticut. We also have a 5 to 5.30 evening service, and I'd love to invite you to both of those services. Join us when you can. Thanks for joining us for these few minutes. Have a great day. so much for watching that video. I hope it richly blessed your life and it brought you closer to Jesus. If you'd like to see more, please go over to Next Generation Saints, wherever you can find podcasts, and go ahead and follow and subscribe, like the vid videos, or the podcasting in general. Until next time, we meet again. May God richly bless you all, my dearly beloved.